It's time for another edition of Make Us a Mixtape. My name is Paul Farvar. I'm Marty DeRosa. And we have a special treat for all you tape heads today. Uh, you've heard us talk about this book uh, multiple times on multiple episodes. And uh, our treat for you today is one of the authors, uh, Rob Tannenbaum, all the way from New York. Did I say that? Yeah, that's like a, like a 75%. That's like a C plus or C. I, I was going to give you a gentleman's B plus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very hard on Paul. You'll see. I pull no punches. I've no, heard this. Rob Tannenbaum is on the show. And uh, we're very excited to have you on. Rob, we quote your book. Uh, we talk about your book all the time. Um, before we get started, uh, give everybody a, a brief little intro uh, about yourself. Oh, my God. Um, well, I am by now what uh, unfortunately is referred to as a veteran music journalist. Ooh, we love that. We love that. I, I, don't, I don't really love that. I mean, you're uh, in the Pathions with like Kurt Loader and, and uh, you know, all the, uh, all the elites. Kurt Loader uh, is actually, Google his age. He's older yeah. than you think. We just celebrated his 74th birthday, I think, on the show. Yeah, man. He's our, he's our holy grail uh, guest of the, of the podcast here. But um, yeah, this is just, uh, but yeah, keep going. I'm sorry to cut you off. So I, um, I'm the co-author of I Want My MTV, an uncensored story, the uncensored story of the music video, <laughs> the uncensored story of the music video revolution. Thank you. Yes. Um, with Craig Marks. And uh, I've been a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, GQ, Playboy, and Details. Um, I've written for the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and lots of magazines that are now defunct. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Or, or some of those you mentioned are no longer magazines, they're just websites. And, and the clips just disappear. I mean, I spent probably 10 years writing for details, which Condé Nast owned, and they never digitized mm. the pre-internet content. So all of that work I did for 10 years, it doesn't exist. Isn't that wild? What was, what was the one story that you wrote for details that you wish you still had in, some, in, in electronic form or any form? You know, there, there was, um, they asked me to write a cover story on Cindy Crawford. And the first thing I said, believe it or not, was no. <laughs> I write about music. That's what I know. I can't. Um, and the editor-in-chief, James Truman, persuaded me to do it. It was kind of a crazy experience because I think I hung out with her on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and the piece was due Monday. Um, and then, you know, that led to them assigning me all sorts of beautiful women to interview. Which is there you go. Not a bad job. A bad yeah. Those magazines, like details were so informative, I think, because like, I was a kid growing up in Indiana and I would read details and I'm like, oh, you're supposed to wear brown shoes with a blue suit. I had no idea, you know, or like, here's how to tie a tie. Like so many things blew my mind away that I would read in those magazines that to this day, if someone's like, how do you know that? I'm like, I think it was like a details <laughs> magazine. Um, but I just remember like just so many of those magazines at the time, like I would go to like a Borders or Barnes and Noble and you grab, I would grab all the music mags and then all those like, you know, kind of like men's lifestyle where you get like, it's not and quite boy, but you get some, yeah. 
Well, it, it, you know, I've heard similar things before about details. In a lot of ways, it was a service magazine. Yeah. Um, and to make the segue, it, I, you know, it reminds me a little bit of MTV. When we were working on the MTV book, um, I think it was John Taylor of Duran Duran who said that people come up to him all the time and say, I was 15 and gay and lived in Indiana and I couldn't come out and I didn't live anywhere near a chic cosmopolitan city and MTV made me feel comfortable with myself because of all the androgyny. Mm -hmm. Well, the great thing, and you, and you talk about it in the book, is how MTV took hold in all these like rural towns or, you know, the flyover states as we call them now. And all these people were influenced by bands like Duran Duran and later rap. And, and it just, it's something that it was kind of like universalized everything in America for a, for a short period of time. And, and it's funny because that all came about because of technological limitations. So cable companies had just been given monopolies over certain cities or areas, and they didn't have the seed money to wire New York City or Los Angeles. Uh, so the cities that got, or the towns that got MTV first were really the secondary and tertiary areas where there, you know, there was a classic rock station and that was it. Right. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, here's MTV corrupting the suburbs. Well, how did, so we grew up on MTV. Was that, was that also why you started the book? Like we call ourselves music insiders. We, with quotes, with, with quotes, quotes. we're stand-up comedians, but we like to call ourselves <laughs> music insiders. Well, I actually am one because I, I was a musician and I managed bands and did law for entertainment law for years. But uh, you're like a true music insider. Was it? Did, was it which one was like the chicken of the egg? Were you already into music and then MTV came out or was it the other way around? Well, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I didn't see MTV for several years. Uh, my parents lived in, we, I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. Home of the uh, WWE, by the way. That's yeah. a wrestling fan. I'm sure you know that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been there recently. I've been to oh. their, their big building recently. Awesome. Um, and my parents, you know, I, I grew up watching a black and white TV. My parents, I had the kind of parents who would say, why do you need a bigger TV? It doesn't make the shows any better. Um, and I went to school in Providence. I don't think Providence was wired for cable. Uh, if it was, I was too cheap to pay for it. So I think the first time I really remember seeing MTV was Live Aid. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. And, and before that, though, were you just like a album head or what, what did you, what, what was your... Yeah, so I, I, um, I was a fairly big music fan in high school. Uh, and I had kind of schizophrenic tastes because in my bedroom, I had, you know, like a little stereo that my parents bought at Bloomingdale's. God bless them. They went to Bloomingdale's to buy me a stereo. And... I would listen to WPLJ and WNEW, which were the progressive FM stations in New York City. And, you know, they were playing all kinds of weird stuff. I remember hearing a lot of David Bromberg, who wasn't on most playlists. And then when I started driving, I was driving my dad's crappy, dented 
beige Ford Maverick, <laughs> which only had an AM radio. So I was listening, you know, the Spinners, Casey and the Sunshine Band, and I really never made any distinction between the FM music and the AM music. It all just like I just loved all of it. What were the what were the bands that you got into that enough to go see live? Like what were the first concerts you got to see uh, and how old were you? I didn't see a lot of concerts in high school. Um <laughs> And I, <laughs> by choice, I should say, <laughs> my my sophomore year in college, uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers came to play on campus, and I didn't buy a ticket because tickets were eight fifty. Yeah, that's a lot back then. <laughs> and he died four months later. Uh, uh, I actually going back to wrestling. I would I could have went to the last Grateful Dead concert in Chicago. This was the last concert. But they were opening the United Center up for wrestling that night. And I was like, I have to be at the first wrestling show at the United Center. So we've been there. Um, now, getting getting into the book, we uh, we were on a kick. Obviously, we read a lot of uh, music books. And I just had this run of books. I don't know if you've ever had like a run of books where you're just like, I'm on fire. Like, I'm picking the best books. These are all great. I'm tearing through them. Um, in sort of like sequential order, I don't know if you're familiar with these, but I read uh, Everybody Loves Our Town, which is an oral history of Seattle. Uh, and I, then uh, leaving the bathroom. What's that? I worked, but both of those authors I worked with. Uh, oh, excellent. Yeah, and then meet me in the bathroom, uh, which was New York in the 2000s. And then I was like, I need more. Uh, there's a really cool independent bookshop in Chicago by my house. And I went there and I saw it and I was just like, oh man, this is exactly what I want. And I, I just devoured it. Um, how did you sort of get the ball rolling with the book? How did you guys decide to go with the uh, uh, oral history and just let you take it away? It, it's a very unartistic um, story, <laughs> but our editor, Carrie Thornton, who's a, a big shot at HarperCollins, uh, she knew that the 30th anniversary of MTV was coming up, and she is a huge second British Invasion fan. Oh, cool. Worships the Cure, uh, published John Taylor's autobiography, which you know she still says is one of the greatest moments of her life. <laughs> so she wanted a uh, an MTV book, and she went to um, who's a, a guy who's now our agent, PJ Mark, and PJ knew Craig, and Craig knew me. So you know, I mean, writers are going to hate this, but we got our book deal without even writing a book proposal. Wow, that's awesome. We all knew what the what the book was going to be. You knew you knew it'd be an oral history right out of the gate. Yeah. Okay. You, uh, who are some of the favorite uh, people that you got to talk to? Uh, oh boy. Um, I just, well, let me, before you even answer that, this is kind of like that same question, but I just like, it's such a daunting task to be like, okay, we're going to do an oral history of MTV. I mean, do you just, do you just anybody who will answer the call? Are you interviewing at first or how does that even, how does that even start? And, and we did the book start to finish in 18 months, oh. um, which is pretty fast. Yeah. We, we sort of knew at the beginning that the unsung heroes, the, the people who had the great stories that hadn't been heard a million times, were going to be the video producers. Mm -hmm. And also the record label people, you know, like whoever was in charge of the video department. In, in 1981, 82, even into 83, 
running the video department at a major label was not a great job because no, you know, nobody thought that MTV was going to work. You know, this is going nowhere. So they would assign the videos to a 22 year old woman who, you know, was never going to get a job in the A&R department, but within two years was a, a VP of a music video. Um, and then, you know, of course it was the artists. There were a number of artists we didn't get who we really wanted. Uh, we really wanted David Bowie and Madonna. Um, you know, and there were people from MTV also who declined to talk to us. Uh, Kurt Loder said, I know the kind of stories that go into books like this and I don't want to be a part of it. John Norris said, I'm not real interested in talking about the past. Yeah. Uh, I know you guys got John. Yeah, yeah. I was like, here we go. And then he's like, I don't want to talk about a lot of that. It's like, <laughs> ah, okay, fine. Still cool. What do you, what do you, like, what kind of story do you think Kurt Loder meant? Like, like dish in the dirt or whatever? He didn't want to get involved in that? I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. The, the fact, and, and that's great about the book that you, you talked about how these, the people that were in, in charge of videos, how all of a sudden women ran the show on video. Yeah. And, and that was such a cool thing to see happen. And then you see all these video producers that were the stars. Like that was one of the shocks. We talked about it on the book. Uh, we did a book report and, uh, and we were just shocked at how, how important it was at the time. And all those people like David Fincher, all these people that just got their start in, in, in that aspect. I had yeah. no idea how much influence they had. I still see, I can't remember what I was watching the other night, uh, but at the end, the credits rolled and it said directed by Beth McCarthy. Beth got her start at MTV and you know became a very successful director. Uh, Ted Demi, the guy who single-handedly forced MTV to- uh, yeah, We talk about him all the time. We talk about him all the time. Yeah. And it, was, it was just pure chutzpah on, on Ted's part. And he became a Hollywood director. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I thought was so interesting in the book and what I loved and I have to give you credit for is a lot of these books, uh, whether it's like a, a you know, like a, a, a biography or like an oral history, even it takes a while to like really get into the story. Like, I think sometimes it's like, why are we spending so much time at the beginning? Like, let's get to what we, but it was so interesting with all the stuff. Yeah, um, right. One of two of the things I thought of right away are how these uh, MTV went to the record labels and they're like, so you're going to make these music videos and then we'll play them. And the record labels were like, cool, how much money are you going to give us? And they're like, well, no, we're not going <laughs> to give you money. And I get everybody's point of view in that. Like I get where these record companies who were like in charge, they were, they were the ones who were like the, you know, they had the market, they had the artists, they had the power and they were like, we're not going to pay for our own commercials. Like that's insanity. Well, the, it, it's, it's a brilliant marketing plan. I mean, mm -hmm. think about it. You're selling advertising for a product that you don't manufacture and they yes. cost yeah. Money. overhead. Yeah. yeah. But right. the, um, you know, what, one of the things that, that I learned that really surprised me so MTV launches August 1st, 1981. If you went back to August 1st, 1981, no one uses the term music videos. There was no term. Mm -hmm. There was no agreed upon term for these things that MTV was built on. They were called pop clips or mini song movies. 
Um, so MTV didn't just create music television, they created the term music video. And you know, now we all know what a music video is. Yeah, it was it was crazy to see how uh, how how that all started and and all the people that are, took credit and then kind of like backed away from it. Um, but but the the people who were the core founders of of MTV and you know and became the prominent executives, it, I, I think of them sometimes as the bad news bears. It it really was kind of a, a bunch of misfits, uh, including two guys who had glass eyes. What are the odds of that? Two different guys who have Paul and I both have glass eyes, oddly enough. We both, uh, that'd be great if we both popped them out. I like the book so much. I love one of the quotes that you said in there that I love so much. You're kind of talking about this like ragtag group is the, this, the, uh, the quote that success has many fathers. And I felt like after I read that in the book, I heard it like in the, you know, you're like listening to other podcasts or like watching the news and you're like, well, you know, success has many fathers. And you're like, I just heard this in the MTV book. Who would you say is the true like father or fathers or mother and father or whatever of MTV? Number one is John Lack. Uh, you, could, you could kind of say that he's the grandparent uh, to the extent that he didn't raise the babies. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how old John was. I think he was in his mid thirties, which in the context of MTV was ancient. Yeah. You know, they, they all thought of John as being extremely uh, old, but yeah. he was the one who was able to go to the board of directors at Warner Amex and say, look at this idea, this is going to work. Right. Uh, and John has an origin story that's in the book where he's traveling in Europe, where music videos were on TV fairly regularly. Mm -hmm. And he said, if we can, if they do that there, why can't we do this here? Uh, John was kind of pushed out. Um, he didn't put up that big of a fight, but he was pushed out after a couple of years. And Bob Pittman was in charge of the network uh, for a number of years. Bob was one of the people who had a glass eye. Uh, and Bob kind of got credit as the father of MTV. Uh, John Lack kind of got forgotten. Now, I don't think Bob Pittman ever said I'm the father of MTV, but when people described him that way, he didn't hurry to correct them. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we wanted to do in this book is give John Lack his due credit. Who was the first interview you did? I don't remember. Okay. Guys, this was, this is 12 years ago now. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I don't remember what I had for breakfast. No, I didn't. I skipped breakfast. <laughs> how, with a with a book like this, how do you finally just say, oh, "Okay, I guess we're done"? Like, are we done talking to people? Let's write the book. Are you constantly still talking to people to get a quote while you're writing the book? Well, that that's a problem that that Craig and I are facing now uh, to a much greater extent because we're doing an oral history of the WWE. Whoa! Oh my God, dude, you're a part of that. Yeah, you just blew his mind. That's, that's oh my God. all that Marty talks about. But with um, with the MTV book, you know, the, I mean, there was a hard, fast deadline because yeah. it had to come out August, uh, what, 2011 mm -hmm. on the 30 year anniversary. And we, we couldn't miss that deadline or all the marketing and promotion of the book would disappear. Mm -hmm. So there was a point where we had to say, 
you know, that's it. That's the end. You know, if, yeah. if, if we don't get David Bowie by next Tuesday, then we just have to give up. Mm -hmm. What well, we're, we're, I want to get into your, your moments in a second, but one last question I have is, uh, what was like your favorite moment in interviewing, whether who was the person that you just wish it would never end? Like you just wanted to keep talking to him or her and you enjoyed it or you were shocked by how much you liked it. We can come back to that because I, I, okay. I don't have an immediate answer. What the one person who does come to mind though is Tom Petty. Um, you know, there it, in the eighties, there was this seeming opposition between artists and MTV performers, right? If you were on MTV, you were a pop artist, you didn't have much credibility. Tom Petty was a, a credible uh, rock musician whose career predated MTV. And I, you know, I swear, when I got on the phone with him, I sort of thought like, oh, he's not gonna care that much about videos. He was so oh, into talking about videos. You know, and he was asking me questions about different, you know, different videos that he'd seen, who directed this. Uh, he, he, was, he was super enthusiastic about it. So that was fun. He clearly is somebody who got, like, you could tell he got into it because his videos were so good. really great and, and different too. He had the cartoon video for Running Down a Dream. He had Johnny Depp for Into the Great White Open. Like he just, it looked like he put a lot of thought, or, thought into it or knew that it was like gonna help a guy who's not your traditional, like good looking, you know, MTV video right. star. Cause my girlfriend had never seen any of those videos. I play them. She's like, it blows my mind that this guy was just like, what's up? This is me. I'm a rock star. Like almost like the audacity of him at the time. And that's an important point because there's a, a myth that everyone who was on MTV was a pretty boy or a pretty girl. You know, it, uh, all MTV does is promote good looks, not good music. Well, ZZ Top were no delight gander <laughs> at. Yeah. You know, neither was Tom Petty. Cindy Lauper was a, a beautiful woman who kind of went out of her way to make herself look weird. Mm -hmm. uh, Huey Lewis, you know, not a pinup guy. So if you brought, in, in some ways, MTV was a meritocracy. Sure, it didn't hurt if you looked like Duran Duran. But if you brought them a great idea for a video, then they were going to play it. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, of Duran Duran or whatever, I felt like the book was great with handling sort of the different phases of MTV because it went through so many phases throughout the years. And one of the almost like heartbreaking things was I remember reading about certain artists who were like, I could have called MTV and I had, you know, I had someone high up on the phone instantly. I could talk to them. And as their genre maybe went down and a new genre was rising up, you know, I feel like bad for like the hair band guys who were like, Lawrence, they wouldn't yeah. answer my calls or like, you know, Kip Winger, who's like, I called to say like, get my t-shirt off that kid on Beavis and Butthead. And they're like, sorry, dude, this is, this is happening. And we're not really like going to change anything. Poor Kip. Who this? Yeah. I mean, that's wild. How did, how did, I mean, I'm sure a lot of these people had a long time to kind of dwell on this, but how did people sort of come across when they were like, then it all just kind of went away. You know, uh, talking to the hair metal guys was, was a lot of fun. And uh, because you guys like music oral history, as I'll mention, my friend Tom Beaujour um, just wrote an oral history of hair metal that's called Nothing But Good Time. Oh, which is, 
you know, it, it just absurd story. Afterwards. I could imagine. Yeah. I had a documentary on and my girlfriend walked in. I was, it was an old like VH1 when metal ruled the sunset strip. And she heard one story and she's like, oh my God. I'm like, you're going to have to leave the room because this is not going to be like a 2021 20, oh, yeah. empowerment story. The, the stuff that Guns N' Roses pulled off back then, it, it was insane and probably didn't age very well. Yeah. But, but yeah. Well, MTV always had a conflicted relationship with hair metal. They, they certainly didn't believe that they were good songs or good bands but it got ratings yeah. and you know, they, they were still unstable enough that they needed to program whatever was going to have ratings. Uh, the program director for a couple of years was Patty Galuzzi, who I went to college with. And you know, Patty, I, I knew Patty's taste. Patty was a huge REM fan, but if there was a rat video that was gonna be popular, they would kind of hold their noses and play it. There were a few people at the network who uh, loved hard rock and, and advocated for it. But you know, the, the hair metal guys all had the exact same story about Nirvana, you know, which was as soon as we saw that cheerleader, cheerleader video, we knew it was over for us. Uh, and you know, I, it's funny because I researched that and it, it wasn't quite as clear cut as that. Even for a year or two after that, MTV was still playing some hair metal bands if yeah. the songs were good or the videos were good. Uh, but, you know, yeah, they, they felt like that one video ended their careers. They there's, all had a, there's a VMA from 91 or two, a video music awards from 91 or two. And it is like there's hair metal, like there's poison and there's like, you know, there's this weird, in, it's almost like the coming and going of these genres or whatever on there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just kind of one of those things too, where if they didn't feel it, like it's been, it's been talked about in interviews so much of like, that's the band that wiped us off the face of the earth. And we were, you know, relegated to doing small venues again. And, and, you know, we've seen all the behind the music or read the books or whatever you mentioned ratings and how, oh, what you had something to say. They, I think, I'm not sure, but I think 91, the VMAs in 1991, I think that was the year of the Nirvana Guns N' Roses yeah. backstage fight, right. which, you know, I mean, if you want a metaphor for sure. the changing of the decade and the changing of MTV, you know, that's like Courtney Love and Axl Rose yeah. screaming epithets. One of, the things you, one of the things you wrote in the book was backstage, uh, everybody was in their trailers and I remember like I can visualize it because I remember those old VMAs when they would do the before this you know before the show and they're walking around so like I know exactly what they're talking about and when when Courtney Love and and, and uh Kurt Cobain were there and Axel's like hey control or control your bitch and Kurt yeah, just yeah. goes yeah shut up bitch and everyone laughed it was like oh no that you just like broke this guy's brain probably right. we're like all these people who, and he wanted Nirvana to open for them. So he clearly was like, oh shit, that's the new, they're the new guys right there. And they like mocked him in public in front of, in front of everyone. And that was like, you know, the scene in the school where the jock says something and the whole school's like, you're the nerd and everyone boos yeah. him and he walks away. Like that was Axel's moment there. Yeah, I, I, I think that was probably a genuinely painful moment for Axel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and they talk, and that and we've read that in other stories, but you have such a, and, and Marty said, like, you, we are there. Like, I picture everything because you detail everything in detail with the story and how they start shaking the trailer and like Duff and all those guys. 
they're they start kind of trying to help axel like redeem himself in some way and it just doesn't happen i mean that was the transition and i think the the guys that you interviewed from warrant and everything they started to realize that it's like okay it's over yeah no absolutely one of the things that you mentioned was ratings and it was they were playing the metal videos the metal bands because that's what people were into that's where the ratings were uh and then you mentioned in the show and this kind of i feel like the the book is a good thing to read if you're sort of like letting nostalgia get in the way and you're like, well, why can't it be like the way it is? And I think you described that in the book and one of the first sort of like defenses against like why they don't play videos all day was remote control. And they put this goofy show on the air, which I thought was like the coolest show in the <laughs> world. And then all of a sudden the ratings and they're like, oh wow, this gets better ratings than just playing music videos. Well, the, one of the problems that they had, believe it or not, had to do with TV Guide. You know, this was a time when TV Guide was still, I don't know how many subscribers, they had 20 million and they would do programming blocks. You know, it would show a list of each day what was on at each hour on each network. And, you know, so it would say on C, you know, CBS, Matlock, eight to 9 p.m. Murder, She Wrote, nine to 10 p.m. It's scary to know that by detail, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably not historically yeah, accurate. I think Murder, She Wrote would have been about the seven o'clock hour. That seemed like a, a <laughs> right, show for early, right early to bed risers, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Sorry, But for MTV, it just said the same thing. Every single page, music videos, music videos, music yeah. videos. And um, there was, you know, especially once the music became more diverse, which was a struggle. Uh, and we can talk about that. That's next. But, it, once you're programming hard rock and hip hop, you have a bit of a problem because there are people who love and they're sitting there waiting for the hip hop video to come on. And when you follow it with Bon Jovi, they turn it off. Or when you follow Bon Jovi with parents just don't understand, the Bon Jovi fan turns it off. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep and hold an audience. Well, and you, and what you mentioned, yeah. not, not to cut you off, but you mentioned too, you get your giant acts like your Madonna, Michael Jackson, Guns N' Roses, you know, but they're not around all the time. They, they go away and they stayed away. It's not like Twitter where you're like, well, at least I know what Madonna's up to. So they go away as well. So you're like pillars are only around every couple of years, like the Olympics almost. And MTV sort of created that problem for themselves because around, you know, 1984, is a, a landmark year in music. And it's kind of the, the I don't know about pinnacle, but it's certainly a, a key moment in the superstar album that drops five or six singles and gets marketed for two or three years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, by the time Madonna was on a fourth single from a record, she was still touring behind it, but it wasn't necessarily something they wanted to play. Didn't you Which feel you know, like when they put out those fourth singles, it was like, you guys don't even care about this album anymore. <laughs> like, I just felt that as a kid, like, I don't think they, Guns N' Roses really gives a shit about in, this. Yeah. yeah. And the director was out of ideas. Mm -hmm. the, um, the producer had just gotten out of rehab for cocaine. Yeah. The label didn't want to give them any more money because it's the fourth single. Yeah. You've, you've gone into too much detail. We might face a defamation loss. <laughs> that concludes part one of our two-part interview with Rob Tannenbaum 
of the book, I Want My MTV. Tune in next week where we talk about his five influential videos. If you haven't already, subscribe and message us your own thoughts. PaulMartyMix at gmail.com.